Welcome to this edition of Code Talk, the concise podcast to help you get to know the National Electrical Code. I'm your host, Frank Seiler, based in Spokane, Washington, and today's episode is entitled, Where to Start? So, you just got your new codebook at the supply house, and as you thumb through, you realize just how big a document this thing is. Now, perhaps in your day-to-day work, you hardly need the codebook, perhaps just a fraction of it. Maybe you really need to get to know the codebook a little bit better to be able to test out or to further your electrical career. And so, this podcast will try to address some of those concerns. Whether you're totally new to the industry or a seasoned professional that needs to dive deep, the amount of information that we receive on a day-to-day basis can really be overwhelming if we don't have a strategy. So what I will try to share with you today is what I have personally found to be effective, and other instructors may have a different approach, and that's fine. Pick out those things that will work for you and make them your own. Just a few thoughts, though, before we begin. Why a podcast? Aren't there better ways to present this information? Well, yes, certainly. And those are out there as well. I teach continuing education for electricians more or less on a daily basis. And in classroom training, you really have the chance to provide the best interaction and retention. Someone can ask a question, it gets answered, something gets drawn on the whiteboard, and that is most helpful. But sometimes we're too busy to be able to attend those kinds of classes. Online videos are also useful tools. And I have those as well on my YouTube channel. But more and more, we are people on the go and we reach for audio content. So this series of podcasts are really a summary of classes that I teach on a regular basis. Think of them as audio notes that you can go back to and review for a specific topic. And with each of these podcasts... There will be some notes so that you can find the information or graphics that may be referenced. Which brings up a a point. I am a visual learner. And many of us that are in the trades are visual learners. That having been said, I will attempt to build the best mental pictures or use analogies or create stories to help retain the information. Some of the, the graphics I can put in some of the lecture notes as well. So... What about my background? What gives me the qualifications to tell you about the electrical codes and standards? Well, I've worked in this trade for about 30 years. I started teaching on a part-time basis in the early 2000s. My background is mostly commercial and industrial construction, a little bit of residential, a little bit of telecom. And so over the years, I've acquired national certification as an electrical inspector, and I've worked in that capacity for the state of Washington. I've also subsequently taught in apprenticeship programs and also at the college level. So a brief disclaimer is in order here. I do not represent any jurisdiction. Local codes and interpretations abound, and thus I can only comment on what is black and white in the codebook. Now at times, I'm going to give my personal opinion, 
and I'll make every effort to alert the listener, as well as why I have a reason for a personal preference in this case. I do not sit on any code panels, but I choose to get my training from those that do. And so in the lecture notes, you will often find references to assist in digging deeper, if you wish. Now, currently, most states are on the 2017 edition of the National Electrical Code. Though at the time of recording, this is September 2019, the 2020 edition has just been released. But for now, I will continue to use the 2017 edition as my basis for discussion. I might re-record this lecture again when the 2020 edition has gained wider acceptance. Now, one of the things that you'll see in the lecture notes, if you have access to them, is uh, there's a link there for uh, Mike Holt's tally of who has adopted which code at present, as well as how he rates the state's adoption process. Now, Mr. Holt is an excellent educator and code expert from the state of Florida, and his information is very well researched and vetted. So at the time of this recording, September 2019, the lay of the land is as follows. There's still one state on the 2008 National Electrical Code. Another state on the 2011 Code. 14 states are still on the 2014 NEC. And the vast majority, that's 29 states, have adopted the 2017 edition. Now, if you're playing along at home, you realize that those numbers don't add up to all of the states that make up the United States. There is no statewide adoption for five different jurisdictions or five different states. Uh, in those particular states, quite often it's local areas or jurisdictions or towns or municipalities that get to choose what kind of electrical code they wish to employ and enforce. And some of these range all the way back to the 2008 code with some limitations and amendments all the way through the 2017 edition. Alright then, with these disclaimers out of the way, where do we start with the codebook? Well, first let me suggest a few materials that will be useful or helpful. In Washington State, which is where I do most of my teaching uh, and work, as well as many other states, testing is permitted with a tabbed, highlighted, and underlined book. Although most states, when you're testing out, prohibit having writing in the book itself. So with this in mind, those are the suggestions for study and marking up the codebook that I'm going to stick to. Now the first order of business might be to gather some materials. And this being a podcast, the nice thing is, after I tell you what uh, uh, might be good to have, you can pause the podcast and come back to it later. So what do I recommend? Well, first of all, let's grab two colors of highlighter, say a yellow and a blue. Make sure they're light enough that they don't obliterate the text that you're highlighting, or that they're so strong that they bleed through the pages excessively. A sharp pencil and a straight edge are also recommended, and most certainly tabs. You can get these at the supply house as well. I personally prefer the brands that are colored, that is, each color identifies a different chapter. But if you don't have them, that's fine too. You will also want a heavier felt marker. My preferences are the colors red and green. And we'll start with these. We kind of want to do this before we apply tabs to the codebook. And so what you want to find is table 
B16, Table 310.15B16. In the 2017 NEC, it's on page 150. So, page 150. If you have the 2014 NEC, it's page 161. And also in the 2020 NEC, it's page 161. At any rate, once you've found that table, which is a, a conductor opacity table, grab the red marker and run it around the edge of that particular page. Do it on all three edges. You might have to put a piece of paper in behind it so that it doesn't bleed through. But run it around all three edges on both sides and then let it dry. Now, if you close the book, you will have no fi trouble finding that particular page. That's the impacity table. You're going to put a tab on it eventually, but you'll be able to pick that out no matter wh where your code book is. You'll be able to see that page. It's one of the most often used pages. Next, you want to grab the green marker, and we're going to do the same for a couple of the grounding tables. So tables 250.66 and 250.122. You can find these on pages 116 and 125, respectively, in the 2017 code. And if you're using the 2014, it's pages 121 and 131. If you're in the 2020 code book, it's pages 123 and 133. And so grab the green marker, do the same for those two pages, and those are the two main grounding tables, and they will always stand out when you have the book closed. This also brings up why in the rest of the discussion I will rarely use page numbers. If you're in different editions of the codebook, the same reference is going to be on a different page. If you have the hardcover edition, which contains a lot of extra information, that's the handbook, you will also have different page numbers. So most of us, we uh, refer uh, to sections. So for example, 310.15 is a section. It lives in chapter 3. The first digit of the section indicates what chapter it's in. The article itself would be 310, Conductors for General Use. Dot .15 is a section, and then B is a subsection. And it's old-style outline numbering. You can get into some quite detailed, uh, you know, hone it down right into the uh, paragraph or sentence that you're looking for with this numbering system. And it tends to stay fairly consistent from code cycle to code cycle. At times, there's reorganization. So, for example, if you have the 2020 codebook and you look at the uh, conductor's article, Article 310, you're going to find that it's very much reorganized. But in general, most code articles try to keep consistent with the numbering system from code cycle to code cycle unless there's a need to change it. All right, next we'll get to our tabs. Now please read the instructions that come with them. Uh, most of us were horrible at reading instructions. We put something together and at the end we've got a bunch of bolts and nuts left over and we kind of wonder, are these extra or did I miss something somewhere? So one of the instructions, uh, one of the items in the instructions is going to tell you to start at the back of the codebook. That's where you want to start tabbing, in the back, from back to front. That way you don't have to uh, constantly look at how you're overlapping the, the tabs. If you're working up a new book and like the tabbing of your old one, uh, we tend to get used to the way the tabs are set. And so if you like the one that you're already using, try to follow the same pattern. 
that is the number of tabs on, on each uh, uh, row, and uh, that way you'll have the pattern that you're used to. But you want to work back to front and follow the instructions. Try to keep your spacing even and consistent, and that way you're going to have a, a book that's easy to use. You want to be able to see each tab. You don't want to overlap them in such a way that one blocks the next. All right, so now you have a working copy of the NEC in front of you. And we want to start by getting kind of a big picture view of the book. You've already sub subconsciously done so if you've tabbed the book. Most tabs are at the start of an article, such as Article 110, General Requirements, or Article 300, Wiring Methods. Now, if your tabs are colored, you can also make out the major chapter divisions quite easily. And we'll discuss those in, in just a little bit. First, though, note the cover. And you've probably glanced at it a few times, not given it much thought, but it says National Electrical Code with a code cycle year. Mine is 2017. However, there's another reference, and that's the actual proper title, NFPA 70. This document, this code, is edited and maintained by the National Fire Protection Association. And in their catalog, it is document number 70. They edit dozens of different standards, and so these are all numbered. And 70 isn't the only electrical code. Uh, there are others. For example, 70E is how to work on uh, energized equipment and how to de-energize electrical equipment safely. And so it sits in that same family, in the 70 series or 70 family. Now, the origins of the National Fire Protection Association, uh, they go back quite a ways. In fact, they go back to the 1893 World's Fair in Chicago. And the 1893 fair was to feature large displays of electric power and lighting. That was the new thing at the time. And we have many other items that are part of our day-to-day -day lexicon that were introduced at this particular event. Now, the Chicago World's Fair was meant to be a celebration of the 400th anniversary of Columbus' first voyage. And the fair would be known as a peak into the future of America. This fair also introduced something that we're quite used to at a fair. It's the Ferris wheel. It was called the Chicago wheel at the time. Scott Joplin, the composer, was featured. And he's, of course, famous for ragtime classics like The Entertainer and Maple Leaf Rag. Other things that you would have found, electrically driven, the world's first public moving walkway. Phosphorescent lamps. These were the precursors to the fluorescent lamps that we're used to. And then a few things that we might eat on a regular basis. Cracker Jack, Juicy Fruit Gum, Quaker Oats, Cream of Wheat, Shredded Wheat, and the ubiquitous hamburger. It also laid the seeds for the electrical code that you've got in your hand. How so? Well, the creators of the lit displays, which included Thomas Edison and Westinghouse, uh, they disagreed on whether direct current or alternating current, of which Westinghouse was a proponent, were safer for such a large event. Now, both put in bids to light up the fair, but Westinghouse's company won out over GE. GE was part owned by Edison. Now, because of these disagreements that followed, the fair's insurance company retracted coverage. What to do? 
Well, a respected Boston electrician engineer was hired. His name was William Merrill. And he was called in to inspect the lighting, the electricity, the displays, the motors, etc. And after the displays were deemed to be safe, the insurance company covered the fare without incident. Other companies began, began to ask uh, William Merrill to provide services uh, similar to the ones that he provided for the fare. The, the main thrust of it was underwriting or insurance underwriting. How likely would it be for a building to catch on fire with electrical wiring installed? And so he formed a company. It later became to be known as Underwriters Laboratories, and this company offered electrical safety certifications on new products and installations. Now, if we go back to the 1880s and 1890s, and we wanted to do some wiring with this newfangled electricity stuff, we had to have the ability often to insure a building. To do so, you had to get permission and an engineering statement. And so I, uh, I found one that's kind of interesting. It's a sample from New York, and it's dated 1881. And it's for an improvement, a, a remodel that was happening at uh, a particular building. Uh, right on Broadway, right downtown New York. It's called the Boreal Building. And here are just a, a couple of the paragraphs. Wires have to have 50% conductivity above the amount calculated as necessary for the number of lights to be supplied by the wire. Wires to be thoroughly insulated and doubly coated with some approved material. All wires to be secured and fastened by some approved non-conducting fastening and to be placed at least two and a half inches for incandescent lights and eight inches for arc lights from each other and eight inches from all other wires and from all other metal or conducting substance and to be placed in a manner to be thoroughly and easily inspected by surveyors. Another paragraph reads, where electricity is conducted into a building from sources other than the building in which it is used, a shutoff must be placed at the point of entrance to each building and the supply turned off when the lights are not in use. And so this entire building was wired based on about a one-page synopsis. Now, while this is a grand improvement over not having any standards at all, the whole venture still sounds a little, well, shall we say, experimental. But progress would not be halted. People wanted electricity. They wanted it in their buildings and in these large metropolitan areas. Of course, insurance was something that was also required. The uh, uh, fire marshals in these areas were quite aware of the dangers that came with electricity. Now, Underwriters Electrical Bureau, which was the precursor to Underwriters Laboratories, was an immediate success. They had uh, plenty of business. And during the next few years, there were other organizations that uh, copied the success, and they were started in uh, the same area. Now, each of them focused on a different branch of safety. Some were electrical and lighting, some were sprinklers. And so a few years later, there were basically five large organizations that did very, very similar work, but they didn't always agree on their standards. So acting independently, electrical installers were forced to choose between five different codes. And that made it very hard to have uniformity amongst these different codes. So sometimes even the uh, the requirements for the systems were, were different. And so 
uh, from one side of the street to the other side of the street, you found incompatibilities. So what grew out of that was that on November 6, 1896, uh, representatives from each of these organizations came together in New York, and their goal was to come up with a common code. The incorporation of this organization reads as follows. This organization shall be known as the National Fire Protection Agency. And from that time on, they've led fire safety efforts in the United States. Uh, one of the first things they did was to combine the various electrical codes that were used. We needed one uniform standard. And a committee was assembled in the spring of 1897 to do so. They looked at uh, the different codes, the differences, what was similar, and they created a draft. And that draft was then sent out to over 1,000 professional reviewers. And they provided comments and uh, suggestions to make additions, to make changes. The committee met again in June, and that became the final result, our first true National Electrical Code, and that was in 1897. And that is really where you can pick up in your co copy of the code book, if you turn to the very first page, right inside the front cover, you will see that it says National Electrical Code, and then underneath, whichever edition it is that you have. And about the middle of the page, it says History and Development of the National Electrical Code. And the second to last paragraph lists all the years that it has been published. The first one is 1897. And then it was published as needed. So sometimes it was revised uh, every two years. Sometimes there was a little bit more space. But since the, um, since the early 60s, we've tried to stick to a regular three-year schedule. There were some times where we had an annual revision because so many new products were coming online. And that's, that's a discussion for a different podcast. We'll talk about that when we talk about conductors for general use. But since 1962, we've tried to stick to a regular three-year schedule with still very much the same format. Code language is suggested. It gets made publicly available for anybody that's active in the electrical industry to peruse if they have comments for or against a particular change. They're able to make those comments. Those get considered by the code-making panels that gets put out to the public again, and that's how each and every code cycle is formulated. It's done with public input, and that is how our current codebook has come to be as well, as well as the one in 2020. So that gives a little bit of a background as to how we got to this point, to this book that's in our hands. So in our next episode, we will take a look at the internal structure of the code. We'll answer this question. If I have two conflicting rules in the code book, which one do I follow? Article 90 explains how the code book is put together and what rules are followed in particular cases. I thank you for listening. If you found this episode on a site other than our website, please go to www.inw-training.com for the lecture notes. That's www.inw-training.com. Until next time, this is your host, Frank Seiler, signing off from Spokane, Washington.